this is Jordan Van Trump with Farm Tank. Farm Tank is an organization I formed for individuals and business owners to learn the latest in innovation, execution, and motivation. I believe there's a huge demand for hearing how others have become successful in life. I'll be traveling the world talking to some of the most influential CEOs and founders to help everyone learn and be more successful in their near future. The agricultural community has been extremely grateful to me and my family, so I'd like to do the same for everyone else and share my insights with you. With that, coming to you live with Farm Tank, Jordan Van Trump. Hey everybody, this is Jordan Van Trump. I'm on here with my dad, Kevin Van Trump, and we are joined with uh, Ezra Levine. Ezra was uh, born and raised in New York, went on to the University of Michigan, started his career over at Bloomberg. Later on, he went on to work at Hilltop Park Associates as a portfolio manager, then moved on as the chief strategy officer at the Spring League, and now he is the CEO at Collectible. And with that, I'd like to uh, welcome Ezra to the show. Hey guys, thanks for for having me on today. Excited to be here. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, excited to have you, and uh, I think we've been on your app, uh, the Collectible app, investing in some stuff. And my dad's been getting crazy with some cards. I think he's a little obsessed, <laughs> and uh, I'm sure we'll talk plenty about that. But I guess we'll just start off the podcast. Um, look, looks like you've uh, really interested in sports. So you had an internship with. Uh, ESPN in college, and looks like you've done a lot with sports in your career. Um, did you play a lot of sports growing up? or played a lot of sports growing up. I was a big baseball player growing up. And, uh, you know, for by way of background, I, I grew up in New York City, which is not renowned for having great field space. If you want to play sports in New York, you have to reserve field time or play in a league, which has, you know, really stringent policies on reserving field time. So, you know, we were we were a little bit at a, at a setback there, but I, I was just, you know I was a big athlete. I played baseball primarily, basketball, uh, little football, little soccer here and there. Always loved sports. I have an older brother who who also loves sports as well. My dad loves sports. Uh, my entire family loves sports. So I, I was I was always surrounded by it. Obviously, you know, as a kid growing up in the late '80s, early '90s, and and through the the 2000s in New York. It was it was a real glory era of New York of New York sports. You had you had the Yankees winning five World Series. You had Derek Jeter in his prime. You had the the Knicks were even relevant for for a period of time there too. Uh, you had the Rangers winning a Stanley Cup. You had the Giants being relevant for you know for a large part of it. So it was really a great time to be growing up in New York. A great time to be a lover of sports and to play sports. I then went on to to college at the University of Michigan, which obviously is a big sports rah rah culture and campus. And, you know, I, I, I didn't, you know, like a lot of people in college, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my career. And, you know, but, but, but I did have a couple contacts who worked in sports media. And during my time at Michigan, I was able to become an intern for a couple of the major sports broadcasters when they came and uh, broadcast Michigan games. I worked for CBS Sports. I worked for ESPN. Um, and so I, I had this experience in sports. One, one thing that I kept coming back to was that it just seemed like people who worked in sports – on a full-time basis, just were, were generally overworked and underpaid and not particularly happy. I'll, I'll, I'll never forget, I was in uh, the, produ- the production truck outside of Michigan Stadium during uh, a really competitive late-season game against Michigan State. I believe this was my sophomore year of college. And it was a really close game, fourth quarter, and I was just talking to the guys. And every single guy in the production truck who worked for ESPN at the time was saying how they can't wait for this game to be over. They could care less about the actual outcome of the game or the fact that it was an exciting game at all. They just wanted to get back home to their families. 
And, you know, that, that experience kind of stuck with me where I thought, look, you know, I, I love sports. I'd like to be in the business of sports, but I don't want to be working, you know, this sort of in the weeds in sports. So I sort of pivoted my thought process, and I was actually going to go to school to become a lawyer. When I realized I didn't want to become a lawyer, I started applying to a bunch of different companies, and Bloomberg was the first uh, company who was dumb enough to hire me. And uh, I set out a career in the financial markets. You know, I knew very little about the, about the financial markets at the time, but, you know, they, they had a great training program there, and I fortuitously got assigned to cover a series of New York City-based hedge funds. And, um, you know, after about six months, one of the hedge funds that I was covering actually offered me a trading position at their fund, and I wound up uh, trading all, all, all different types of instruments from uh, public equities to commodity futures to currency futures to index futures. Um, and I realized, you know, quickly that, you know, I, I, I just love the, the financial markets. So I, I spent about 10 years uh, on the financial markets. At the same time, I, got, I went back to school and got my MBA from NYU Stern at, uh, in the evenings as well. And I sort of quickly rose the ranks at that hedge fund and, you know, um, went, went from, a, from a trader to an analyst to a portfolio manager. And, you know, but by the time I was 29, I was managing my own uh, accounts for, for the firm. Uh, at that point, the firm actually gave back our outside capital. We became a single family office. And when you become a family office, all mandates are lifted, and you can pretty much do whatever the hell you want to do. And so we started making a series of public and private investments. And one, one investment that we wanted to making was an idea that I wanted to pitching to the firm in conjunction with our current CEO, um, Brian Woods, about effectively creating a better minor league football league, right? a, you know, a lower-cost minor league football league that effectively uh, accomplished what the AAF was trying to do, what the XFL was trying to do at a much grander scale, was, you know, look, the, the difference between guys who were in the NFL and not in the NFL oftentimes was such a slim margin, and oftentimes it wasn't based on merit, it was based on politics. If a general manager drafted a guy in the fifth round, regardless of if he was the best player on the roster, that person tended to make the roster over guys who were undrafted, right? And so our view was that if we could create uh, a better mousetrap, if you will, if we can provide opportunities for players to get additional exposure from NFL, CFL, uh, scouts, and there, there's a real opportunity to create a more centralized uh, minor league football league and showcase model, right? So that, that became the Spring League, which is um, it's been around for almost five years now. We have an equity deal with Fox Sports. We'll be playing on Fox Sports uh, in the next coming weeks. And, yeah, that, that, that little plucky startup which we created has outlasted the XFL and the AF and, and become a really valuable part of the professional football landscape. So that, that, that was sort of my, my foray into – you know, the, the sort of entrepreneurial and business side of sports firsthand. So, you know, I really came to the table with Collectible with this background in the financial markets, with this background in sports entrepreneurship, and just in a, in a family, uh, you know, my, my, my dad has always collected, and so I was always around that, and I, I collected sports cards when I was younger. And um, Collectible at the time, just for a little background on Collectible, Collectible was, uh, was not always a fractional ownership company. Collectible was the number one rated sports auction data company. So effectively, we can go on the collectible app and search for a card or a memorabilia item, and it'll give you all the auction results from the 1970s. And uh, they were pivoting the business there and going to fractional ownership, and they wound up bringing me on board as CEO back in uh, January of 2020, and it's, it's been a fun ride ever since. So were they, was collectible looking for someone with a trading background at the time, or was that not really even a... Uh, I guess, was that not even an idea at the moment when they were recruiting you? 
Yeah, I think, I think they were looking for someone who had that combination, right, that combination of financial markets because ultimately, you know, when you're fractionalizing something, you're making a security and you're creating a, an exchange, right, like a, a, you're really creating a financial platform, a real fintech platform. They were, they were looking for someone who had industry knowledge and, um, and familiarity with the collectibles market. I had that. And they, they were looking for someone who was hungry and wasn't afraid of startup challenges, and I had already – kind of gone through the ringer and experienced that. And, you know, I, I also was at a point in my career where I realized, you know, I was at this sort of pivot point where I realized that I could stay in the financial markets or I can go and operate businesses and grow companies. And you know, I just realized that I, I had much more of a passion for growing businesses than I did for investing in businesses. And so, I mean, I think it was just one of those, one of those cases where it was the right place at the right time. And, and again, they, they, were, they were dumb enough to hire me, and, um, and it's, been, it's been fun. Hey, so, hey, so how big was... Yeah, go ahead. Hey, Jordan, let me take one minute and tell some of our older listeners, like myself, you guys, you young guys are talking this, uh, the lingo, this fractal investing and, and this and that. And, and I'm just telling you, because I've talked to some of my buddies that, uh, that we used to trade with on the floor and other this fractal thing's a little bit in their dome. Uh, just, they, they just, we just, we aren't accustomed to it or used to it. So let me just kind of give my, dumbed down rendition then we'll let ezra kind of add to the color fractal investing for everyone is if all of you remember you know if you want to own a a 52 tops mantle rookie card and it's going for over a million dollars uh you know or two three million depending on the grade or whatever it may be now in today's world you can become a part owner or a shareholder in that item and only have to pay a very small amount, uh, depending on what that share price is. They had started doing that with, um, you know, really high-end artwork where you can own a Picasso by just owning a fractal share of the actual Picasso. Uh, They're doing that now even in land, farmland. I am seeing them starting to move forward with fractal investing in uh, say, uh, you know, say there's a 1,000 acres, 2,000 acres comes up for sale, prime Iowa farm ground. Uh, you can be part of a group that buys it through fractal investing. So what we're seeing now, and when you see these massive high uh, prices on some of these cards or some of these other collectible things, um, you know, there's fractal investing taking place that I think is fueling some of the fire as well and driving some prices higher because it's just fun and easier to throw 500 bucks at, you know, a mantle and you throw a thousand bucks at something over here and 500 over here. It's just kind of fun. And uh, I, I think it makes it more accessible to everyone and, and to all kinds of people and not just reserved for the highly, highly elite. Uh, you guys expand on that you younger guy and kind of, you know, tell them what you think. Ezra, go ahead. Yeah, no, I think, I think that, that, that was definitely a really good summary. Yeah. I mean, effectively fraction of ownership is exactly what we've seen in the public markets with stocks. When you think about a stock, right, a publicly traded stock like Facebook, when you buy a share of Facebook, you're buying a fractional ownership of the company. And it's a, it's, a, it's a small bit of ownership of the company. You, you don't own the entire company when you buy one share of stock. You own, you know, that, that very small percentage of it. So, you know, really what we did is we just applied that basic concept 
of fractional ownership to the world of collectibles. And in particular, you know, we're starting out exclusively on sports collectibles. Right? So, you know, really what we've done is we've taken these iconic, uh, high-value blue-chip sports collectibles that, you know, in some cases could be in the millions, which really, you know, prices out all but the wealthiest of collectors, and we made them affordable and liquid um, and the ability to get really diversified, uh, almost instantaneous exposure to the world of blue chip collecting, right? So I think, you know, and the, the, the benefit again, yeah, is just that, you know, anyone can participate in that, right? There was such a high barrier to entry. You had to be so wealthy to get exposure to the upper end of the industry. Now, literally, if you're over the age of 18 um, and you're a verified real person in the United States, you can participate. And I think there's something really cool to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know what you're seeing on your end um, with a lot of your investors and, I'm obviously on the app and the other fractional apps to uh, invest and make money, but the more I see guys, I'm I'm 25, so the, the more I see people my age, around my age, getting on these apps and even with stocks, it seems more like a status thing almost, like they like showing their buddies that they own part of this card or um, people like to be like, oh yeah, I'm a... I'm invested in Tesla. They may only own one or two shares, but it's almost like they just like being a part of something and showing people that they're in something. I don't know if you guys are seeing that on your end or if it's a lot of guys actually investing, but the younger crowd, that's what I'm kind of seeing on my end. Yeah, no, look, I, I think I think that there there is definitely something to that. I mean, these are our passion-led items, right? You know, the, you know I, I think it's, you know, there there definitely are people who are investing purely to make money, but I think generally speaking, when you when you're investing in collectibles or buying or buying collectibles, there there generally is a motive that's not just pure profit, right? You're 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 buying things that you know have the potential to make money, but you're really buying them because you might have a passion or an interest in it, and it's fun to to show it to your friends and brag to your fan your friends that you're a part owner of a Mickey Mantle 1952 tops, right? So. Yeah, I think that there's there's definitely a, a wide array of, of interests and reasons why people participate. And again, we, we've seen both. We've seen people who are doing this, you know, purely as an investment. Other people are doing it purely because they think it's cool and fun. And other people, um, I would say the, the bulk of the people are doing it because the, there's some crossover, you know, of people who think it's really cool and fun to kind of show off to their friends, but also, uh, you know, have a passion for it, but also, you know, are thinking about this as a real investment opportunity and one where they can get, um, you know, just a, a, a little diversification in unique ways that, that really wasn't available to them previously. Yeah, Ezra, that's uh, that's where I was kicking around with you before the, the start. I said, you know, a lot of my, uh, a lot of my country bumpkin buddies, uh, you know, we'd love to have a collectible type of uh, app where, you know, I could, uh, we could do some fractal investing and just like a really cool bull that came up for sale. Um, you know, you buy, you know, some of these bulls are going for a million dollars more. You know, you, you could do fractal in the bulls. You could do, you know, a famous civil war gun that was, you know, worth over millions of dollars or a 1970, uh, Timmy Cuda, uh, you know, something from back in the day, or 72 Cheyenne pickup, whatever, like you're saying, I think it'd be cool, uh, and that's what we're Jordan and I have been kicking around and are trying to. Guys are interested, uh, you know, in making that play with us, and said maybe 
back end or something of that nature. But I, I really see what you're saying. The link between sports and families and parents and, and that link is just massively important and it ties things back together. Um, you know, do, do you think, as we, just because I've been a huge baseball card uh, buyer and seller most of my life, uh, basketball cards, hockey, whatever it may be, um, on the sports card side, do you, where do you see that industry heading or what, what do you see there? Yeah. You know, with, with sports cards, I mean, right. Yeah. Just sports cards mainly, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, I think, I think sports cards, you know, are, 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 are having a real resurgence, you know, for, for a while after the, the junk wax era, there, there was generally just sort of a loss of interest and, um, you know, but what, what you saw really beginning in 2000, um, and 15, I would say, was, was that real inflection year where, where things started to get really interesting again. Yeah, the, there, there was, you know, real scarcity and real sort of cultural relevance beginning to tick up. And, you know, what we've seen since 2015 through today really is just this absolute boom in sports cards because I think you're, you're seeing it viewed in a couple different ways, which all are incredibly interesting and and um, and and sort of positive trends going forward, right? So you're having this cultural moment, right, where you're seeing just real widespread consumer adoption uh, and awareness of it. You know, I think in, in a lot of ways, and I, I've been on the record numerous times of saying this, that, you know, this is the, the collectible category, in particular sports collectibles, is now being looked at as that third-headed monster to fantasy sports and sports gambling. If you want exposure and you want to sort of invest or get skin in the game on sports, you know, now there, there are sort of three ways to do that, right? You, you, you can buy or own, you know, shares uh, or cards in sports, in sports collectibles. You can, you know, bet on a sports game, or you can play fantasy sports, right, whether that's daily or, or leagues or keepers or whatever it is. So, you know, I think, I think people are coming to realize that, that this exists and it's just as fun and it's not as binary as, as some of the other alternatives, right? So you're having this, you know, real mainstream adoption, and obviously as, as rising prices occur, you know, you're getting just a tremendous amount of media coverage from some really, really big publications. I mean, our company, Collectible, just in the last two months, the, the, the list of outlets which have, you know, written or had me on to kind of speak about the company, I mean, you're talking some of the biggest in the world, right? CNN, Bloomberg, uh, Forbes, ESPN. I mean, the, the, the amount of interest in our category is unlike anything I think this industry has probably ever seen before. Uh, you're also having what's a really fascinating, you know, I would say intersection here is that this is also being looked at, you know, by the, by the financial types, whether it's money managers, uh, private equity firms, um, family offices, uh, real institutional money managers are, are looking at these alternative investments. Right? I, I read this unbelievable study from Credit Suisse recently, uh, which said that uh, over – 70%, 70% of their ultra-high-net-worth clients uh, have already allocated two collectibles. And of those 70%, um, 33% of those 70% were brand new to investing in collectibles over the last year. And 80% of those 70% have indicated that they want to take up their portfolio allocations to collectibles in the coming years. And so I think, I think really what you're seeing is um, – people are looking to diversify in unique ways. Right? When you look at the collectible category, it's been an unbelievable store of wealth for long periods of time. Right? It's been, by and large, inflation protected. Uh, it's, 
in some cases, and again, the, the data in our category in particular is not particularly good, but you know, if you look at a couple indices which have been created, it does show that high-end sports collectibles um, have generated significant alpha over the public markets, even over the past 12 years where there's been a rampant bull run. Um, and again, it's this passion-led investment where generally speaking, because you have an interest in it and you understand it, when the market does take a leg down, it's not always, or, or it's not usually, I should say, the, the, the first thing in, in your portfolio that you look to liquidate. Right? So you know, I think it, it's just sort of at this intersection. We always say at Collectible, it's sort of at the intersection of passion and profits, right? Passion and profits. And I think that, that combination, particularly for sports collectibles, is something that has been really a really powerful driver of this sort of return to, to mainstream attention um, and to this sort of financialization of it. And I think you know, if you take all those things with some of the other structural things which are happening in the industry, I think, I think it, it lends itself to, to you know, the, the possibility of this becoming much bigger over time. Yeah, I, yeah. I, Jordan, I was going to tell like, mom, you know, my wife, she's like, she's been around this her whole life with me on the cards and the other things. It kind of died down there, you know, for a while. But when I started seeing the prices, I went back out to the safe and one of the other, in the safety deposit box, I said, hey, pull out some of that old, I just sent Golden, uh, you know, several Jordan rookies, nines and tens and Hank Aaron rookies and some other stuff. I had some wax boxes I forgot I'd even had. So I sold them out on eBay for like 30, 40 grand a clip. And I'm like, I mean, my wife's like, you got to be kidding me. She's like, some of these cards are more than half the houses we've bought through our lifetime. And I think people, you should be aware. I mean, you, you guys are selling cards. I mean, there's cards out there that back in the day, I mean, back when we were younger, I mean, hell, they weren't going for that much at all. And now here we sit and you've got things, you know, six figures, seven figures and, uh, and pushing. And I'm with Ezra. When you can't draw, when you're drawing zero percent interest and you can't make any money just uh, in the bank and you got stocks at all time highs and the housing market's gone crazy and I mean money's looking for a home money's in circulation and and money is is clearly looking for a place to uh, gain alpha and boy we've seen just an explosion in this sports card side um, I'm buying and selling things pretty regularly. And like Jordan says, he's like, my gosh, Dad, you've lost your mind. And, you know, and I'll just blow up and get pissed every night when I'm in auctions or I'm on. Uh, I had to call Her Golden or Harry. I don't know which one it was. And uh, they got to up your line. It's like I'm out in Vegas talking to Caesars. I mean, they're like, hey, we're going to have to probably up your line. And they upped it to like seven figures. For it. And I told my wife, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I mean. I'm betting on a few Jackie Robinson and these people are up in lines to like seven figures calling my bank, you know, calling to get bank statements and things to, to verify funds. And it's like, holy smokes. So I'm with Ezra. It's definitely profit and passion uh, <laughs> have, have come into play. And my wife will laugh because, listen, a couple of my really good friends, big traders and a couple of our, uh, you know, lawyers at some big, big firms that are part, I mean, they're calling and we're talking baseball cards. <laughs> on the phone and my wife is just cracking up. She guys, she's like, you guys are like kids again. Like you're 18 years old and uh, <laughs> 15 buying and selling these super expensive cards and all this, but it, it is a lot of fun. And Jordan and I have had a lot of fun through the years as a uh, father and son and things like that and piddling with it. And he's always mad now as because, uh, you know, he just had a flush Pokemon collection and uh, Pokemon cards and all that jazz. And, 
I think my wife gave them to my sister for her kids, you know, and hell, they got chewed up and, <laughs> and lost. One of like, those classic stories, right? Yeah, oh, look, it, it's 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 our it's our generation's version of the of the 1952 tops mantles, right? My my dad tells the story every single day that he he had a massive collection of these 52 mantles, and you know they 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 weren't you know really worth much at the time, so they all put in their bicycle spokes and they treated them poorly, and um, you know and that and that and that sort of led to them being ultimately as valuable as they are now because there's aren't that many of them in, in really good condition because. They, they, they weren't valued then, and, and so people didn't really treat them with care. But, yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, that, that, you know, that statement, you know, about, you know, that you're, you're having a lot of fun with this again with, with, with your friends and talking baseball cards again, and you and your son are, are talking about it too. You know, I think it, it's, it's so true, and it's almost unique to sports, right, and, and to cards in some ways. I mean, I was, you know, when, uh, when, when Tops went public over the last couple of weeks, uh, the, the interviews with Michael Eisner – the CEO of Tops. I mean, he he said exactly that when when he purchased Tops. The, the main reason why he purchased it in the first place was because you know Tops had such a brand association with people, right? Like he, he compared it to Disney, almost, right? Like when when you think of Tops, a lot of people think of their childhood and their and their families and you know their their sort of best associations and memories. And so it does sort of breathe that you know that that passion and that like you know, that, that nostalgia factor in ways that not a lot of brands or categories do, right? I think so, you know, if you kind of couple that with the fact that, yeah, I mean, there, again, it's no guarantee you'll make money doing this, but there, there has been a lot of money being made for long periods of time. The caveat has been is that the only people who are really making all the money are the people who can afford to really participate in the high end of the industry until now, right? Like un, un, until fractional ownership and companies like Collectible came to the market, now you know, that upper end of the industry where historically returns have been the best uh, is now available to anyone. And, again, you know, I, I just think that that's such a cool thing for, um, for people. And, and I think ultimately it's really a great thing for the sports collectibles industry as well. Yeah. I was wanting um, to know on, like, uh, age demographics, on, like, what you guys have. Um, it seems like probably 90% of the people I talk to doing any of the sports card stuff like over the age of 40 i don't do you guys have a lot of younger guys involved on the platform or yeah it's a it's it's an interesting mix we we well you know for our our our, our numbers show some really interesting trends right for one we we hit a milestone the other day where we have investors or users of the platform in all 50 states um the the average age of people on the platform is they're usually about, you know, in the upper 30s, right, in the 37 to, to 40 range. Uh, with that, we, we are seeing that trend come down a little bit as our user base grows. Uh, the average income on the platform is, is very high, right? The, the average household um, income per year is over 100000 and the average household net worth at the moment is over a million. Uh, and we're, we're over about 30,000 unique investors strong at the moment. So it, it is, you know, as of now, it's uh, – it's a relatively affluent demographic. Our, our expectation is that, you know, those averages will come down as our user base continues to grow. We're looking at this as, you know, our, our total addressable market is really, you know, people who participate and play fantasy sports and sports gambling. When you look at, you know, at the daily fantasy sports operators, they've got five to six million users, give or take. Look at some of the other financial brokerage companies or anywhere, you know, you look at a Robinhood, right, which obviously appeals to, you know, more retail, younger 
uh, audiences who are interested in investing. They have 13 million users. But you know, again, if you look at again, you know, at the sort of the upper ends, right? You have the Fidelities and the Schwabs of the world. I mean, they have you know well over a million. Um, or, or millions, I should say, of brokerage accounts opening, right? So, you know, we, we, we think we're really kind of scratching the surface of what our potential is. Today, though, it's, it, it's, a, it's a pretty affluent demographic, uh, and our average age is somewhere in the mid to high 30s. Hey, hey Jordan, I want to expand on that a second for our listeners and just pass along some information. That I, I, and that's what I try to do is help people. Um, learn what I've learned and, and been lucky to be blessed to be around some uh, fabulous investors and, and traders. But a long, long time ago, I was in a conversation with a, uh, you know, a real famous uh, investor slash trader. We were talking and he had gained insight uh, from someone, you know, and everyone just tries to pass it down and help people. But his theory and the theory he was taught is that the world moves in three generational type cycles, meaning and I'm not going to get into crazy cycle or any of that, craziness but but what i'm saying here is is that if you look back throughout history it's a theory that we move in these three generational cycles meaning my grandparents my my parents and then my grandparents would be three generational cycles okay so you got my mom and dad and then my grandparents and if you look at that three generational cycle you know, my grandparents were really at the beginning of cars. They went televi- radio, television, telephones. We're really, and then my parents did the, did the same, expounded on that. And my generation, no, 50 plus, you know, 55, 60, uh, you know, we're, we're really probably going to be the last of that. And that will end that three-generational cycle. Your millennial group being you and those age, you know, from what, uh, 25 to say 40, um, you know, that's going to be a, the start of the next three generational cycle, which would be, you know, uh, everything from social media to uh, autonomous driving, you know, driverless vehicles, I'm sure will uh, embed that uh, space travel more for uh, regular people. And obviously this fractal investing uh, because it's coming more into your space. And I think the key with figuring out what to do with your money, and I believe that's why we're at such a riff right now just in America in general. We're, you know, my generation's trying to hold on to everything we deem uh, that we know to be true, meaning we all literally think backwards, uh, you know, from my parents to my grandparents. There's, those are people who taught us uh, what we know. So we only know what we know, and we want to really hold on to that real tightly. And you're seeing that divide, uh, you know, really shake out. And you and I have talked about it with your sister and, and some of the, my older friends, and you, you see how we hold on tight. We, we struggle to gain perspective on some of the newer things. But when you're trying to figure out where to put your money as you become 50, 60 years old, older, you have to look to the younger generations and try and figure out, what those changes or trends are going to be. I think we're at a really pivotal time because I think the millennials are the start of that new three-generational cycle, and it's going to be super interesting. And that's why I wanted to pick Ezra's brain. Just, you know, we're seeing this, the NFT thing, which blows my mind. I can't get my head around it. But Ezra Jordan, was it a couple weeks ago, Jordan, he's like, Dad, I bought these packs. 
you know, NFT packs. Top like, shop. Now cards are being sold like mm-hmm. NFT. And I'm just like, you know, for me, shit, I'm trying to reference a 52 mantle in a, in a spoke on one of my, uh, my, my, my uncles or my grandparents' bikes, you know? So it's like, now I got this NFT thing in my head and I, I can't, you know, what are you guys seeing on that? And Jordan, you and Ezra maybe talk. Cause like I said, I'm most interested in hearing, you know, how you guys see life playing out moving forward. And, and that's going to dictate how I can maneuver uh, my money around and see that those opportunities are there. So, yeah. Jordan, yeah, tell Ezra. Yeah, I can comment on that. Yeah, please, Jordan, go for it. Yeah, just on the NFT stuff. I mean, we've, I've been buying those uh, NBA top shots, and um, Tops has come out with that stuff uh, a couple weeks ago. With on that stuff was skyrocket high, I thought, and the crypto punk stuff. And I mean, is that going to affect the like physical collectible space or? Or is that just like a totally yeah. different market of people? <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think it it re- remains to be seen. You know, the the, the NFT space is it's so new. I mean, I think if if you, you know, if we were talking probably six months ago and you mentioned NFTs on this podcast, I think all of us would be like, "What the hell are you guys talking about?" Um, so you know, it, it's it's so it's so new for a lot of people, and you know, I think I think even the companies who are leading the way in, in NFTs you know, have really only released, you know, version one of what they foresee their product becoming, right? You're, you're, you're really only seeing these kind of moments, these, you know, these, uh, these initial kind of stabs at it. And they, they're obviously planning on layering a utility component to it, a gamification component to it. You know, generally what we're seeing is that, you know, for the most part, I would say NFTs have been, have been great for the collectibles category in the sense where, people are talking about collectibles, whether they're physical or digital, people are talking about collectibles again in ways that they've never talked about them before. You know, our, our industry, you know, and it's, it wasn't long ago where I really dove deep into this industry into the collectible category. And I was told time and time again, and I, I thought it was a fair assumption that we were entering this like really sleepy cat, you know, fragmented category where there hadn't been any innovation or advancement in a very long time. I, we've probably seen, as an industry, probably more advancement over the last six months, whether physical or digital or fractional or however you want to slice and dice it, more innovation in the last six months than we have in the last decade. I don't, I don't think that's, that's outlandish to say, right? So, you know, I think it's, it's still too early to know exactly what these NFTs will become. I, I think there is some merit to it just in the sense where I understand for physical card buyers, there are a lot of pain points, especially if you're buying, you know, raw cards, or you're buying wax or whatever it is. I mean, you got to, you got to get it graded, and, and there's bloated fees across the board and shipping and communicating with buyers and sellers. I, mean, I, I understand why, you know, why there's an attraction to it, right? I mean, you, the, the, the provenance is, clear, is very clean. Uh, you, know, you know, by and large, how much supply there is, although in Top Shot, you know, we don't know exactly what their future plans are. I mean, I, I get it. I get I do get it. So, you know, I, I think our, our view right now is, we're we're watching and, and 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 waiting like like anyone else. We're we're curious to see how these perform uh, in good times and bad times. How they perform over long periods of time. Um, and but I think generally speaking, you know, sort of top of the mind uh, awareness has been something which this category has really achieved in the last couple months in ways that it never uh, it really never done before. So you know, I think it's a, it's really interesting for us to track and and see what what comes of it. 
Yeah, I do think the NFT stuff does help the fractional investing side, though, because either way, I mean, if you're buying the NFT or the fractional side of things, I mean, you're not actually touching or owning the card or collectible itself. So I do think right. it's helping in that way on your and that's, side. And that's, and that's a great point, right? Because, you know, when, when we first launched, you know, the, the sort of bear case, if you will, uh, on, on our model was that, well, look, you have all these collectors. They, they don't want to own something. Uh, they don't want to own a tangible item intangibly, right? They, they don't want to, you know, if you're going to buy a collectible, you want to see it. You want to touch it. You want to have it in your possession. You know, I think, I think that mentality has definitely shifted, right? So now, you know, we're, we're almost being looked at as the conservative play in the sense where, sure, you don't own it physically, but at least there's a tangible item in back of it, right? Like, at, at least there's an item, like a physical item in back of it. So you own, you know, shares of a physical item. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it probably has helped the, the overall, you know, sentiment uh, on, that, on that critique. But, you know, I think, again, I, I just think it's so early in these NFTs. I, I understand why they're popping up. I think, you know, in, in some cases, collectibles and uh, art, right, are probably the easiest applications of NFTs or are the easiest ways for people to kind of really grapple with what an NFT is. I personally think that, you know, the underlying technology of the, of the NFTs is absolutely here to stay. And I think for, for a lot, you know, it's going to have real profound effects with middlemen all across, all across different industries. If, you know, if, if the endpoint can, can connect directly with the buyers in a seamless transaction. I, 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 believe, I believe that that's going to be a big part of this. You know, how, you know, how investable or collectible some of these sports entities are, I, I, think, I think that that will have to play itself over time. Hey, Jordan, mm-hmm. are you, let, me, uh, yeah. <clears throat> let me jump in on the dynamics of how this kind of works for everyone. Just let them know. So, like, I'll get an email. Let's just say I go out there. They, oh, hell, a few weeks back, they put up uh, at Collectible. It was a uh, 61 Fleer Wilt Chamberlain, all right, uh, his rookie card, cool card. Uh, I, Jordan's over here, the kids are over here. I said, oh, shit, I got to jump on here and, and buy some shares. And I said, jump on there. Boom, the thing sold out in like two seconds flat or whatever, a couple minutes. And uh, about three or four days later, I don't even know, I, Ezra can get specific. It wasn't even maybe a week later. We get an email or I get one from Collectible, and Jordan does that, there's been a buyout offer on that card. Some other uh, entity uh, wanted to buy that card from Collectible, and it went to a vote on people that own the shares. I just got another one on that Gretzky uh, that I had bought, and it got declined. But we accept the offer on the Chamberlain, and it sells. And I don't know, maybe my numbers are off. I have... I think it was like a 60% return and like boom, boom, like no time at all. Now, as my question is, how do the dynamics work to let, I guess, to let people know? Because my first, my first blush was just like you were saying. I told Jordan, I said, eh, I'm not sure I like it just because I want to feel the card, touch the card. <laughs> you know, I'm just older and I was just used to, you know, flicking through the card, looking at my cards. But then as I've gotten more used to it and I've gotten, uh, you know, it, it, I, I like it. I enjoy it and I have fun with it. So I, my question is, do you guys, let's say I have a 10 Jordan sitting here. Uh, someone wants to put it up or, or do sell it to you guys. Do you guys take ownership of the card or does the card stay? How, how does all that work? Like, do you guys take yeah. it to your yep. place? And 
create it and yep. check we, it all out. Yep. We, yeah, we take ownership of, of everything on the platform uh, physically. So we, we, uh, we have it physically. We insure it. We vault it. We store it to the highest of industry capabilities and standards. Yeah. You know, again, it's a it's a huge yeah you know, it's a it's a huge responsibility for us because we're we're ultimately right. you know the sort of the caretakers or the custodians if you will of of your assets right you know we okay. we, we own you know some some of it as well but yeah you know, it's by and large it's owned by hundreds if not thousands of people so yeah we you know we we caretake it we we possess it physically we insure it we bolt it and um, yeah you know on the on the buyout front yeah you know it, it's something where. You know, it's a fast-moving market, and you know we, you know, we have the ability, I believe, to, to curate some of the best items in sports. And oftentimes, we're playing where there's just not a lot of these things out there. And um, you know, so we'll we'll put something up, or we'll consign something, and you know, and the, 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 these opportunities for collectors who want to own physically or just want to own all the shares of it do pop up, where they make offers to acquire the items on the platform. When that happens, we've seen it happen. You know, not not every day, but a lot. Yeah, I think in the we've done I think 85 or 86 of these assets so far since September, and I believe we've gotten 11 buyout offers, of which five have been accepted, six have been declined. And um, you know, so if, if and when that happens, we will take effectively a shareholder survey. Right, so we'll, you know, as you mentioned, we'll send you an email or a text message or both, and we'll ask if you want that offer to be accepted or declined, and ultimately, you know, it'll be a pro rata shareholder survey, and if the majority of shareholders want it to be accepted, assuming it's a fair market offer, then it'll be accepted. Uh, and, you know, if the, you know, in general, if the majority says no, then it'll be declined, right? So we, we really do listen to the shareholders because, again, it's our view that, you know, the, these are shareholder assets, you know, so... Um, we we will let the the investors and the shareholders speak for themselves in terms of what they want to do and when they want to take profits. If, uh, but I think importantly that there is another way for you to make money or or, or to get liquidity on these assets as well. We have uh, a continuous trading market. Uh, we we were the first fractional ownership to really introduce this continuous market. So every day, uh, like the stock market, you, I would think of it as a little stock market for sports collectibles. These, these, you know, values fluctuate of items that are eligible for the secondary market. And so, you know, you can put in limit prices, right? So the price you want to buy it, the price you want to sell it. And, um, and you know, you, you can buy and sell and trade on our platform directly if a buyout offer has not been received or accepted. Yeah, my Why are the other platforms day. not doing the trading, like the daily trading, like you guys have implemented? <laughs> it's a good question. Is it the back end or <laughs> – yeah, it is. It is complicated to do. I mean, we've we've established really strong partnerships, um, which which have allowed us to to do it. I think you know, in, in in some cases, we probably have prioritized liquidity for shareholders, probably a little bit more than some of the other platforms have. We, I think we've kind of cracked the code and brought innovation in a lot of different ways. Right, I mean, we were the first company who figured out how collectors could sell partial ownership of something, not 100%. Right, if you backtrack a little bit, you know, prior to collectible. Our company, the only real way to sell a collectible was 100% or 0%, right? You, get, you have to sell it on mm -hmm. eBay or an auction house or whatever it was. We said that, that's, that's kind of crazy, right? Like, you know, if you're, if you're trading on the public markets, you could have, um, I'll make up numbers, of course, but you could have 100 shares of Facebook. And may, maybe you bought Facebook at, two, at 50 bucks per share. Well, now it's trading at $300 per share. You might want to take profits in, on some of your position, but maybe you think Facebook's going higher over time, right? So the, the, the concept to us of like, not being able to, to sell partial stakes in something, you had to sell all of it or none of it, was so 
archaic and so cumbersome that you know, we thought if we could figure this out, it would provide a great deal of liquidity and flexibility and probably get some of these items that people otherwise would not sell to the market and to our fractional community if people didn't have to lose all of their exposure to it. Right? So we were the first company who figured that out and brought that to market. We were the first company who figured out how to do continuous trading and bring that to market. So you know, I, think, I think Collectible, just with our, our amazing team and you know, our backgrounds of, of having a financial markets experience and also having industry experience and a wide range of, you know, of sort of people and, and networks, and uh, I, think, I think has allowed us to do things differently and do things uh, faster and more innovative than some of the other companies out there so far. Yeah, that that uh, yeah, I agree for sure. And Jordan asked me the other day; he he was asking that question to me because my phone will ding, and like I was telling everyone, uh, it'll show up. And Michelle will be like, "What? What are you doing? What's that?" And I said, "Oh, it's that uh, power trading hour there, <laughs> trading hour over at Collectible." She's like, "You've lost your mind." And I'm sitting there trading, you know, <laughs> seeing what the bid offer is on a, a Gretzky or Wilt Chamberlain. She's like, have you lost it? And I said, yeah, you know, hey, I mean, there's a, there's a pretty good spread here, pretty good bid off. There might be some opportunities here. And we'll just laugh. But, uh, yeah, and Jordan's like, Dad, why the hell don't those other? I said, I don't know, because it's pretty cool. I mean, I think it all uh, – I think it all – That was the main thing why you're, like, strictly on collectible. <laughs> well, right. You, you get yeah. scrolled up. You're like, hey, what's the deal? Like, what if I want to get rid of this? Like, why can't I trade it like a stock? Like, scrolls right. you up. That was, yeah, that was and, true. And, you're, and, you're, and you're, you're seeing really our first, you know, in the, in the same way how Top Shot is sort of version one of their product. Yeah, we're, we're sort of in version one of our trading platform, too. I mean, you know, I think if you project, you know, if you project a couple months forward, you know, we, we fully plan on introducing, you know, sort of expanding our power hour to true stock market hours, right, from 9.30 to 4 o'clock Eastern. You'll be able to trade these things all day long, just like you can trade Facebook, Amazon, or Google, right? So we're, we're, we're waiting for a little bit more liquidity and sort of depth of the marketplace to develop that will absolutely come. It's just a matter of time. It's such a new concept and a new platform. But, yeah, I mean, we, we, we prioritize liquidity. You know, I think there's, there's definitely opportunities on the secondary market. You know, it's still – it's still somewhat inefficient, although although it's developing really nicely. It's still somewhat inefficient. So, yeah, I mean, I think if you're someone who knows what you're doing and you have a real game plan, both short term and long term, there's definitely money to be made on the secondary market if you if you really attack it with a you know with a smart game plan. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Jordan and I have been kicking around. You know, what what do you? Uh, <laughs> I don't even know if you follow it. I'm sure you do. What do you think about this whole graded, uh, you know, the whole graded thing? I mean, it's like the PSA system. Yeah, the PSA, (laughs) whether it's back in or whether it's uh, SGC, whoever. I mean, it's just it's just crazy to see the premium that some of these things are bringing simply because of a grade. Which, in my opinion, I understand, but. I also understand the grading. There's some gray area, and it's somewhat subjective, and I know it's not supposed to be subjective, but we all have employees, and we all have people to work for us, and we know how when we can you – know, we just see the difference between one employee and one other person. So I always feel like when a card goes in and gets graded, <laughs> I know there are rules, regulate guidelines, and things of that nature, but I'm like, my gosh, if the guy had a rough night and him and his wife were fighting and the kids are going screaming, everyone's going nuts. And he comes in and grades my car. I mean, it could be vastly different than the person over here. Who's, uh, you know, in a different mindset or, or mood. So 
I saw that PSA uh, recently bought that uh, computer or, you know, AI-type-based platform that's going to hopefully or somehow refine the grading process even a little more. But what are you guys seeing on your end as it's all that great? I guess it's, it's really not – it really doesn't have any bearing on your guys' business, for to say, but what's your personal opinion on all that jazz? Or, or where do you see it playing out? Yeah, no, I think I think you're you're spot on, right? You know, I think look, I think by and large the grading companies do a really good job. You know, I think they've, yeah. they've I would I would probably point to, you know, the, the 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 sort of widespread acceptance of grading as probably one of the biggest things which has propelled our industry forward because it's created, you know, a, a real standardized way of of transacting these things. And just, you know, again, not not every card is graded perfectly, but generally speaking, you know, a nine, you know, is a nine, and a ten is a ten. There, 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 there's obviously differences amongst every card, and I, I think you know, you, you oftentimes see that at auctions, right? Where like one ten will trade at a big premium because maybe it's better centered, or you know, it's got sharper corners, or whatever it is. And so, yeah, I think the the at the upper end of the industry, uh, you know, with auctions, it's usually a pretty efficient process, I would say, where you know, if you're a real collector and understand what to look for, you're not always paying the the, the, the same price for a ten versus another 10, you're, you're generally able to kind of figure out, you know, what's a real 10 and a nice 10 or a soft 10. Um, but, yeah, you know, I think, uh, you know, I, I think that the, the grading agencies probably share your, your concern, and, um, and there's a whole, you know, backlog, obviously, of, of submissions where it's taking forever for them to turn these things around. You know, the, the acquisition, I think, by PSA of Genement, I think is a really interesting step forward. You know, Kevin and, and, and his team at Genement really – you know, created effectively, you know, not a replacement or substitute for human graders, but, you know, sort of AI-assisted or, or, tech, or technology-assisted grading, which will take some of the onus and some of the pressure off of the, the human graders, right? I think, I think that's a really, really good and logical next step. And, yeah, I mean, you know, even you could have the, the, the best graders in the world, but, you know, everyone's human, right? So you're right. If you had a bad day or you're not focused or you're overwhelmed, uh, it could potentially – affect the the quality of that grade. Right? I think so, you know, sort of introducing this um, you know, probably does add a degree of accuracy to it and definitely takes a lot of the pressure off the humans. And you know, I, I was I, I, I heard Nat Turner, um, who, who who was part of that group who acquired PSA, really talk about this. He said, Look, you know, like it's uh, you know, we, we obviously understand that, you know, the grading process is a is, you know, a real backlog right now, at a real backlog and um, but it's not easy to kind of onboard or find qualified graders. So if you're a company like PSA, you know, your choices are right now without sort of the assistance of technology is to, you know, effectively it's a quality versus quantity debate, right? Like you could do more submissions with humans only, but the quality and the accuracy might suffer a little bit. And I think, you know, that they're concerned obviously about their reputation and, and, and by trying to maintain to the highest of their abilities, you know, that integrity of their grading process, right? So I think, yeah, I, I personally think that the, the acquisition of Gentlemen will be really interesting to kind of track uh, how they integrate that. I, I think it's probably, you know, a really great thing for the industry at large. Um, you know, as it relates to collectible, I mean, you know, we've, we've, we've heard from a lot of people that, you know, the, the trouble and the, and the painstaking process of getting their cards graded has actually led them more to just going with fractional, right? Because, again, you know, everything's already graded. Everything's already, you know, done for you. Literally, it's, it's a seamless process. You go in collectible, and if you have money in your wallet or in your account, you can, you can buy shares and get, and get that exposure without having to deal with the, 
with a multi-month process of submitting it and waiting for the grade and having your money tied up and paying the fees and what have you. So, yeah, I think if anything, short-term it probably helps fractional of just kind of capturing some of those customers who might otherwise you know, be willing to go through the grading process. But, yeah, I think in general the grading agencies have done a tremendous job uh, of kind of propelling the industry forward, and I think it will only get better from here. Perfect. Jordan, you got anything on your end, or I know we've taken a bunch yeah. I was of wanting, stuff. I was wanting to jump into a little bit on like just the card where he sees like some of these cards moving, moving forward. Like uh, obviously you got like your Jeters, your Kobe's, your Brady's, some of those newer guys that just finished playing. I mean, obviously they're some of the best players ever. But then you have like Mahomes cards going for these crazy amounts, and these Luca cards going for these crazy amounts. Um, like, how how much higher can these – my question is, like, how much higher can these cards go? I mean, hell, we're from Kansas City, and Mahomes is a freaking god here, and he's super popular. And, I mean, he's got crazy stats now, but, I mean, is he anywhere near Tom Brady's level on a full career? I don't think so. Um, I mean, what happens if some of these guys – have career-ending injuries. I mean, these these cards are just going for crazy amounts. I mean, how much higher can they go is kind of my question. Like, what Mahomes is going for now, if he ends up having a career just as good as Brady's, I mean, what is his cards going for, $10 million? Um, I guess that's kind of my question <laughs> yeah, on that end. Look, it's a it's a great great question, Matt. I'm you know just for for regulatory reasons, I'm sort of unable to give projections on where these cards could go. So you know, I'll talk more more you know sort of high end macro on it than you know on an individual yeah. card or athlete basis. But yeah, you know, I think I think that that's been something which people have been asking for a long time, right? Like every, every time a new record is set, like how much higher can these things go? I mean, we, we did see like yesterday, you know, a, a LeBron James card, an exquisite number to 23, just sold for 5.2 million dollars, right? So, you know, that you know that obviously set a new record for basketball. We had a, a couple of weeks ago, you had that Tom Brady sell, I think, for 2.2 million, which set a new record for football. Uh, you, you had you had the the mantle uh, top nine from Rob Go sold for 5.2 million. So it just seems like you know the, these these new records occur, and it sort of re-rates the entire industry a little bit, and it sets off this conversation of is this top? Is this you know how are we in a bubble? Is this you know is this sustainable? And yeah, you know, I guess uh, I guess I would point to the fact that of course nobody has a crystal ball, and it's a marketplace like anything else. It could go up, it could go down. I have no you know comments on on these particular prices, but I do think that. Yeah, the, the the supply demand imbalance in this category is really is really uh, stark and sharp, right? You have you know you just have a lot of people who are taking interest in this hobby, and a lot of people with very deep pockets, not just individuals, but you know real institutions with really deep pockets who are looking to gain exposure to this. And it seems like everyone is by and large chasing the same players, the same cards, and so again, you just have, you have a lot of money chasing. Uh, very few opportunities, and I, I think I think that that does set up a really interesting dynamic going forward. You also have things like, you know, get, I'll talk, again, I'll talk strictly on a structural basis because I think it's I think that's kind of the the more important story here, right? Um, yeah, this has been a cash business for a, forever. I mean, you're you know when you buy something at auction, oftentimes you're paying cash for it, right? So you're it's sort of a one-to-one cash industry now, um, as as you may have already experienced personally. Uh, auction houses are starting to, 
you know, to extend margin to people, right, or, or larger lines of credit for people to draw down upon to make purchases. Uh, certain auction houses and perhaps certain fractional companies, I won't, I won't break any news here, are starting to look at accepting cryptocurrencies as a form of payment. And we know a lot of people, especially younger generations, have made a lot of money in crypto and, and might be looking to kind of diversify that into safer stores of value. So, yeah, I think it'll be it'll be interesting, you know. But you know, from 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 what I can say, again, just macro is there's a lot of money coming in. There's a tremendous amount of interest, which really has come into the category for the first time. Um, people are looking to diversify into these alternatives. You have margins, uh, you know, which are ticking up. You have different forms of payment structures coming into the category. You have people now looking at sports cards as sort of like a modern art form, and we, we know how big that, that art market is out there. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think it's, it's anyone's guess. It really is anyone's guess, you know, where and how far prices could, could go. But I, I do think when you look at the, the amount of supply that's available, uh, it's not a lot. And, you know, oftentimes supply is remaining fixed. Uh, and demand is really ticking up, right? So I think, you know, that when there's an increase in demand, and a constant of supply that does tend to lead to higher prices over time. But again, to your point, it has moved a lot in a short amount of time. I think you know, a little bit of a pullback, a breather, or correction in this category would probably be healthy. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to kind of track how this goes um, in the future. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you guys are doing much of this, and I don't know if you can touch on it, but hey, how are a lot of these guys? What? Jordan. Yeah, I want to expand on that. I'm not under. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm not under uh, regulatory guidelines, and I know Ezra gave the uh, correct answer, uh, as would be uh, anticipated for for his position with the firm. Uh, but I think listeners want to know why the hell I'm investing in it. I, I would suspect. I mean, since you know most of the people listening, that's they want to hear what the hell I'm doing. So um, I'll give you the straight scoop. Here it is. And Jordan hit the question to Ezra, which. Normally, I'd tell Jordan to, he's lost his mind because every day I have people call me, and every day people want to call in. And, hey, how high is uh, crude oil going to go? Hey, how high is corn going to go? Hey, guys, how high is that Tesla stock going to keep going? Well, guys, seriously. I mean, seriously. Those, those, are, those questions are, like Ezra said, I mean, we don't know one knows for certain, but in my world and the way I – invest and trade to me it comes down to supply and demand and it always has come down to supply and demand uh, yes i was a technical trader for many years and, and no one understand charting formations and patterns uh, but again it's the fundamentals that matter so you have to look at something whether it's a bitcoin or whether whatever the investment may be this was the this was the same shit i was taking when i was long tesla so early uh, and Ron Barron was long Tesla. We were talking four or five years ago. It was my top holding, and I told everyone it was our top position. Uh, you know, well, here, Jordan, just like you said, Mahomes isn't Tom Brady yet. Okay, well, Tesla's not GM and Ford yet. I'm going to go back five years ago. This was the conversation we were having. Well, now Tesla stocks mm -hmm. were 7X, what all the majors are, are combined. So mm -hmm. there's no saying that Mahomes' card couldn't be worth 10X what Tom Brady's card is. Why? Supply and demand. People buy Tesla stock and hold the shit like it's a cold following. They, Elon Musk is going to host uh, Saturday Night Live this weekend. I mean, these people hold the stock. They had a tight float. There's a short float. Look at Chipotle stock. You got a super short float. 
people hold it like a, you know, it's like a cult following, like I said, and we're at 1500 bucks a share. Uh, Tesla continues to run and split and run and split. Well, when they buy and hold a short, tight, floated stock, and they don't release it back into the marketplace and they don't like to sell it, you have more buyers than you have sellers. When you have more buyers than you have sellers, and just like Ezra's trying to point out in a uh, PC politically correct manner here, when you have more buyers than you have sellers and you're opening up the floodgates to new uh, ways to take payment, new ways to take uh, kids' crypto money, uh, new, new avenues, new institutional money coming in. To me, why I am investing is because I see more buyers than I see sellers. I don't know if my son Jordan is going to want to sell his Mahomes rookie card when I pass away because that's his link and tie to him and I at a uh, championship game one day. You know, he might not sell that. So think about this now, guys, as we move forward and Mm -hmm. ladies. Will there be sellers? If there are fewer sellers than buyers, which way does the price have to go, Jordan? Higher. There's no question. If there's fewer sellers than buyers and that there's more demand than there is more selling pressure, and I'm with Ezra, maybe you have some air pockets. You know, maybe you have some air pockets and these things pull out. Maybe the stock market gets its bell rung or the cryptos get their bell rung and they need to liquidate some money, okay. But I'm of the belief, by human psychology, I think, and I'm with Ezra, and I've studied it, and I've watched it, uh, when the markets break dramatically, one would think those assets would take a massive, massive hit. Go back and look through history. Go back and look. See how big a hit that Jordan took. See how big a hit some of these other rookies took. They took a major little, they took a little minor setback, but it wasn't a massive hit. Why didn't I sell all my Jordans? Well, I mean, there was ties to that. There's emotional ties, psychological ties. That's all I'm trying to point out. It's the same reason people don't want to sell that Tesla stock. It's the same type of thing, even bigger, in my opinion, even bigger, because it ties them emotionally and psychologically to something they really don't want to get rid of. So make sure you're thinking about that. Make sure you're putting all the pieces together when you say how much higher can we go uh, the markets can remain irrational way longer than you can remain solvent. And I've learned that lesson many, many times. So, you know, and when Ezra says, I, I'm telling you right now, I've traded bubbles and I've, and bubbles are when everyone's in. I almost feel like most of the people, Jordan, are saying what you're saying. I'm going to buy a lot of these things on a break. Well, if the mm-hmm. majority of the crowd is saying they're going to be buyers on a break, so there ain't very many big breaks. It's no different mm-hmm. than the Bitcoin. Everyone's sitting around, you know, I'm going to buy this on a big break. Yeah, you and everyone else. Okay? So me- remember that. I'm going to buy farm ground when it breaks. Well, shit, it now breaks. I mean, it breaks minor. So just remember that in this current environment, in this current state, where you have fairly easy money, fairly low rates, money's floating around looking for a home, it comes down to supply and demand. Are you gonna, do you think you will have more buyers than you will have sellers? And those are your keys. And it doesn't just have to go for sports cards. I mean, this, this is lesson well learned uh, from years of trading on my own behalf. It is sports cards, uh, whether it's commodities, uh, whether it's it, – it doesn't make really a difference what you are investing or trading in. So that's why I love the space because I feel like I can possibly get 
somewhat of a psychological edge and just like, as we're saying, you know, in a lot of the money's chasing the same players because those are the players that had an impact on it. Those are the players, you know, the kids grew up loving and, and the family, you know, had jerseys and, and all that jazz. So a lot of that goes into it. So I think it's a great question that you ask how – this is crazy how high could this go. But, hey, um, I, I think it could keep pushing. I mean, I think the more avenues and floodgates you open up that allow money to come into the space and become easier to buy and sell, that's why I said that power trading hour is critically important because it allows the whole entire industry to become easier to buy and sell. When you create that ease, you can contract more money. More money attracts mostly more buyers because they have that psychological you know, fix they're trying to get. And, uh, you know, I think it's a win-win for everyone. And, uh, yeah, of course, I don't want to say it's straight up and we never come back. It's like any markets. I mean, there's going to be – I think what I'm trying to figure out, Ezra, is I think you, you want to time what's hot. You know, where is the big money going to flow next? It, it wasn't always just the 52 tops um, uh, mantle. There were times, you know, that that flip-flopped around. That 51 Bowman was hot for a period when I was younger, and then it mm-hmm. kind of flipped that at 52 Bowman. And then, you know, things flip around, and, and certain cards become more interesting to certain buyers, and you kind of mm-hmm. try to have to figure out where's the money going to flow next. And it's so crazily similar to – to how we trade in the real world of stocks or commodities yes. uh, or bonds. Yes. It's just so, so similar. But I love the the mix with the sports involved. So that's okay. what I'm trying to point yeah. out. So yeah, I mean, look, you know, that, that's, that, that's really what appealed to me here as well. I mean, I, you know, I, I spent about a decade on Wall Street also trading um, and, and researching and analyzing and making bets. Right? And so, yeah, I think a lot of the same characteristics of rotations, the different sectors or safe havens or the rotations of modern versus vintage or certain players come in and out of style for whatever reason. Yeah, all, all those same things are here. I mean, we've, we've heard, you know, the last couple of months, you know, our market has taken a little bit of a dip, particularly on, on, the, on the modern side. I mean, it's still shit. You know, it's still up a lot, obviously, over the last, you know, year or two. But, yeah, I mean, you know, that, that same rotation took shape is still taking shape, I think, in, in our category, right? And so the rotation – out of modern, back into vintage, back into the safe havens, right? Back into the mantles, back into the mazes, back into the Kofaxes, right? But, yeah, we, we had obviously a catalyst yesterday, right? LeBron sold for 5.2. Now, for a little inside baseball, that, that sale was, was one of the, the worst-kept secrets in our industry. I mean, that, that's been happening. I knew about that sale a couple of months ago, but it, it's, it's unclear exactly, you know, how much of that was in the market already. So, yeah, I'm fascinated to, to, to kind of see – you know, how LeBron cards trade, right, over the next couple months. Did that, you know, sort of establish a new threshold in the same way how, you know, when, when that Mantle $5.2 million sale, <clears throat> excuse me, was announced, right, every other Mantle card in the world traded up in unison with that, right? So, yeah, I, I think, you know, the, the same rotations, that same thought process uh, that exists uh, for hundreds of years in the public markets or in the commodities markets or whatever it is, it, it very much exists here. And, yeah, I think what, what you know, what the, the, the difference really is is that, you know, you don't really, yeah, you, you have supply-demand relationships here. Um, unlike public stocks, you don't have cash flow, right? You can't, you know, it's, some of the, the metrics aren't the same. So, I, you know, I would be thinking about, you know, who are the players who have that emotional connection with people? Who are the players who, 
in 10 years, you're going to remember that, you know, you saw that person play or your dad was a huge, you know, fan of that person or your grandpa loved that player. Or, so, yeah, it, it's kind of thinking it's almost more psychology and emotional connection and social and cultural relevance coupled with supply and demand uh, is really what sort of moves our category. And then also I would be thinking about, you know, what catalyst could be upcoming for, for certain cards, right? What, what cards, and, and again, I won't give my personal opinion, but, you know, so some people love – you know, cards that where you get these catalysts. And when, when, when I say catalysts, I really mean, you know, similar graded cards of that player trading at auction. I think what we've seen so far, like, for instance, you know, our Gretzky card, uh, which we listed for 67000 well, now it's trading at, I don't think, it's over 200000 on our marketplace because there have been other comps, right? There have been other Gretzky 9s which traded, you know, for $200,000 plus at other auction houses, right? That, that in some ways is a catalyst for other appreciation um, or depreciation uh, in these, you know, in, in these cards. Other people, other people love these real, you know, one-of-one -one cards that you don't get these catalysts, but when you get a catalyst, maybe it's a massive catalyst, right? Because they're, they're, you only have one of these cards in existence. So a, a lot of it is just sort of figuring out your own risk tolerance, your own thought process, kind of figuring out, you know, how you want to express yourself and your, your level of conviction in the category. But, yeah, I think, I think to your point, a great point, a lot of the same dynamics that you see in the public markets exist here. I would just be thinking about, you know, what, you know, the, the, the supply-demand relationship plus, you know, the cultural and historical relevance and the emotional connection really is oftentimes what drives uh, the prices both short-term and long-term in our category. Yeah, and, you know, I, everyone's got to come up with their own trading style. So, you know, where I made a lot of money in year long time, Pat, and I think it's still relevant. I mean, if you can forget, you know, who's going to be in the Hall of Fame? Uh, who's going to be on the ballots? You know, invest, you know, there, there's going to be a pop. It's just like if the algorithms uh, and the AI trading models are picking up headline, uh, more headline chatter, it's going to drive, you know, demand and interest. So, you know, for me in years, years past, you know, I'd buy football cards out of season. Uh, knowing that there was a lull, and then, you know, you'd get in season and, and you would get some hot headlines, uh, you know, and you could just think of other ways or strategies, uh, you know, who's going to be hot, who's not, how, you know, how you long-term forecast it. Uh, and, and everyone needs to know, you can see uh, PSA offers uh, a great database where you can see how many, num you know, how many eights are there available. Have there ever been any tens graded? You know, a lot of cards, some of the vintage cards, there's never even been any 10s. Uh, and so, you know, you know, and then how many 9s are there? So you can see how limited your supply is, and I think that's a huge, huge uh, factor. You know, if you can see that the supply is very, very low and limited, um, you know, on some of the more vintage things, and you know demand's going to remain hot and heavy, or you feel it will. I shouldn't say no, but uh, you feel demand could, could remain strong. You know, I, I think those are all things that play in just like we, we do with our stock investing or our uh, investing on that side of it. So, you know, it, it's all, like as I said, very, very similar. And uh, I just think there's a lot of cool qualities that, that can go both sides. So, Yeah, and, and yeah. Your, 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 point, your, your point on seasonality is also spot on too, right? Uh, there, there is a rhythm to this market. So certain sports, you know, go through lulls when – that sport is not in season, right? And so that, you know, generally speaking, you know, I won't comment you know, on the specifics, but generally speaking, people do like to buy things or consign things off season to kind of capture that appreciation as interest level for that sport ticks up 
you know, in the preseason, early season. And then generally speaking, you kind of see a lull in that sport kind of mid-season around the All-Star break. There's, there's kind of a little bit of a lull. And then it tends to pick back up again during the playoffs. And then tapers up. Like, there's a real sort of you know, song and dance and rhythm uh, and seasonality to, to the industry that I, I think a lot of sophisticated players uh, do, do try to kind of ride that wave. Yeah. I agree. Jordan, got anything else, buddy? I think I'm good. I think we've taken up enough of his time and probably wrapped this bad boy up. Yeah, I agree. I was excited to talk. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. Like I said, I, I'm excited. I, I think it's awesome. I uh, love what you guys are doing. I'm going to try and promote it, uh, you know, through the podcast. So I've been telling friends, uh, been telling friends about it and, Hey, I think it's just a win-win for everyone in the industry, and I think it's just kind of cool and fun. And you know, I wish you guys all the best. And maybe if I get my uh, farm town <laughs> uh, farm boy investing uh, app uh, up and running, maybe we can uh, hook up or something on that end too. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Well, look, it's been it's been a lot of fun, guys. And yeah, I I, I love to talk shop. Um, and anytime, of course. So I'm happy to come back on if there's major moves in our category, of course. But yeah, we 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 appreciate your your support of the platform. We think that we're onto to something pretty significant. It's a, a lot of fun, kind of bringing the sports collectibles category mainstream. And I think that collectible has has a real kind of leading role in that category. So uh, again, thanks for for having me on, and um, we'll we'll definitely talk again soon. Yes, sir. I appreciate it. Sounds good. Thanks, Ezra. Talk to you. Thanks, guys. Yeah, bye-bye.